Heavenly Father, once again, we come to the written word. Just words on a page. Without your spirit, they are just that. And yet, your spirit, which gives us life, gives the words life that we might see Jesus, the living word. That we might know him better. That we might see him as he is. A savior, redeemer, friend, brother, king, and lord. May we know him a little bit better as we look at this, these words today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to the book of John, chapter 5. And um, we're going to be looking at a passage we actually looked at a couple of years ago. Uh, John chapter 5 is a, an episode in Jesus' life. Uh, and it is really kind of, um, <coughs> in terms of the book of John, uh, the bulk of the book of John only covers one year. From uh, a Passover to a Passover, right before Jesus is crucified, uh, tried crucified, and and uh, and then is resurrected. Um, from from John three all the way to the end is just one year, and it's only organized around the feasts that Jesus comes to visit. He does Passover, he does uh, Shavuot, which is uh, this one, which is uh, the feast of first fruits. Uh, the Feast of Sukkot, which is Tabernacles, which is in the fall. Um, and he goes to Hanukkah, which is interesting. It's the only uh, biblical reference to the, the festival of Hanukkah. Um, and he participates in Purim, which is the festival of the book of Esther. Um, and it's kind of Jesus looking, looking at Jesus through these vignettes of Jesus at these feasts. And this, uh, chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus. But then in chapter 5, he is back, he's headed back to Jerusalem, and, uh, and we're just going to pick up the narrative there uh, in chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. This is uh, Shavuot, or First Fruits or Pentecost. It has a lot of different names, or the Feast of Weeks. It's also called that um, uh, because it's seven weeks from Passover, so seven weeks is seven sevens, so that's why it's called Weeks. But after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five rooted colonnades. <clears throat> in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now if you're reading um, the text, you may notice that the ver there's something weird about the verse numbers here in most of our Bibles. It goes one, two, three, five. Um, that is because the, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 in most medieval manuscripts of the New Testament includes something that as near as we can tell was a marginal note. It does not appear in the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. And it describes um, something that did not happen in this time. Um, and, and basically this, this idea, there's a, a, a note, you'll see it like in a footnote, it says that an angel would come in and stir the waters and whoever got into the water first, uh, was healed. So you'll see that verse in the old King James Bible in the margins of most of these Bibles. Um, that's actually a reference to, um, a situation that happened with this pool after the time of Jesus, after Jesus 
when Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans um, in AD 70 and, and destroyed, this became an Asclepion. Now, you're all like, okay. Uh, Asclepius was the Roman uh, god of healing. And um, associated with the Roman god of healing uh, was the Roman god of luck, whose name was Fortuna. And the idea was that you were lucky if you got healed. I wish I was making that up, but that's actually um, the way that it meant. And so these two pools, uh, one was set aside to Asclepius and one was set aside to Fortuna. And the idea was that the gods would send a messenger and stir the waters. And if you got into the waters, you'd be healed. Now, what's interesting about these waters is that these pools, the water was, is described by many contemporary observers as being red. Um, now that, for those of you in Merrimack, that's not that weird because our water turns everything orange. Um, but uh, it was because of the high iron content of the rock that the water filtered through to get to the pool, and it was red. Um, and, uh, and so uh, this idea that, that there was an angel who stirred the waters, this, that, that, that doesn't date from the time of Jesus, and so probably what happened was along the way somebody wrote that as a marginal note in a manuscript, and it migrated into the text. So that is a long-winded explanation for why the verses go 1, 2, 3, 5. Um, because when the num- verses were numbered, that verse was included. Um, and so in, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another step, another steps down before me. Now again, because of this older reading, there's a way of this, this, um, this thing that got added about this angel. There's a lot of reading about this, that this angel, you know, he's, when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? It's because he's waiting for this angel. But if that's not a part of the text, it reads very different. It reads, basically, there are this group of invalids on this pool. So why are they at this pool? Well, um, as you moved toward Jerusalem, if you were a holy, observant Jew at the time of Jesus, you had to be purified. Um, You had to go through a a practice of uh, kind of ritual bathing to prepare to go to uh, the temple. And... One of the things that you would do is you would come to this pool. Now, when we read the word pool, um, we have probably in our mind a very different situation than the pool of Bethesda. Uh, The pool of Bethesda is ten times the size of an Olympic pool. All right? These two pools are enormous. They contained about 10 million gallons of water. All right? They were also about 45 feet deep. All right? Um, so get out of your mind the above-ground pool at your uncle's house. All right, this is enormous. Now the extraordinary thing is these aren't even the biggest pools that existed uh, outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem, in the hill country outside of Jerusalem, which fed Jerusalem. There were pools called Solomon's pools. Solomon's pools contained each of them. There were three of them, and each one contained 75 million gallons of water. Um, and that was the reservoir of, for the water for the city of Jerusalem. Um, never, ever, ever doubt 
that Herod the Great, who built the, the city of Jerusalem that Jesus lived in, he, he updated all the, all the infrastructure of the city, didn't understand massive projects. That is an enormous project. And remember, by the way, this is not dug with backhoes. These were done, dug by hand into the living rock, into the limestone uh, of the Jerusalem hills. It is an impressive thing. You just imagine 75 million gallons of water, building something that could hold that much water. And then they built the uh, aquifers, which transferred the water, aqueducts and all those things uh, that transferred the water to Jerusalem. So why, why this pool? Well, um, the, the southern pool of the Pool of Bethesda uh, has steps built into it. We've actually found the pools. You can actually visit the pools in Israel uh, today. And the southern pool has a series of steps built into it. And the reason that the steps are built into it is because this is how you would ritually purify yourself before you went to the temple. You would come to the edge of the pool and you'd have a group. Uh, it was like Disneyland, right? They released people all in groups. You didn't get to just, just show up and everybody hit it. But it was kind of an organized thing. There were attendants and you had to have an armband and a lanyard. No, I don't. Um, but, but you would line up and what would happen is you would come to the edge of the pool and when the attendants gave the signal, you would take one step in you would scoop some water and you pour it on your head. You take another step in, scoop some water, pour it on your head. Step another until you were all the way up to here, and then you would put the last bit, and then you put your head under the water, and then you get out of the pool. And then once all of this group got out of the southern pool, which is the lower pool, um, attendants at the top would release water from the northern pool, the higher pool, and it would flow down into that southern pool, because under Jewish law. Water is the only thing that when clean water touches unclean water, the clean water makes the unclean water clean. In everything un else in Jewish law, if an unclean thing and a clean thing touch, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. But in Jewish law, water, clean water makes unclean water clean. All right, so it flows the other way. Uh, by the way, water, a big motif in John. Right? So if you... You reading John, you'll notice water always popping up, this conversation about water. So they would release some water in, the water would stir, and then the next group would do the whole thing. Invalids, lame, paralyzed people, blind people, um, were technically allowed to go to the temple as long as they could be purified. But it appears that what had happened in this society was that you would bring your blind, lame, paralyzed relative to the pool, drop them off, purify yourself, go to the temple where all the cool kids were, then come back and pick up your blind, lame, or paralyzed family member and take them home. So they never got to get in the temple. That's why this lame guy, when Jesus says to you, do you want to be healed? His answer is, I just want to go to the temple. I just want somebody to carry me into the pool so I can be purified, so I can go and be in the presence of God. And put a little bit of a different spin on this. And Jesus says to him, in verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, anyone going to guess where I think he walked? I bet he went into that water, and then he went to the temple. He'd been waiting for almost for 40 years, 38 years, to be able to go into the temple. 
For 38 festivals, he had been carried by his family members, probably as a child, carried by his family members, laid at the side of that pool while they went and worshipped, and then they came back and picked him up. Can you imagine what it felt like? How relegated to the margins this man felt like. How outside of the norm. And once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. In verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, who were all standing around looking for reasons to criticize everybody, they are the mean girls of the ancient world. (laughs) The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Notice what they're upset about. They're upset that a man who has been lame for 38 years dared to do work and carry his bed. Probably the only possession he has. And they say, and uh, take it, and he said, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so I did. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Look at what they're concerned about. How dare you do work on the Sabbath day? Well, the guy healed me. I figured he had the authority to tell me to carry my bed. Who did that? Not who healed you. Not who changed 38 years of you being on the margins. Not, not who did this miraculous thing just by telling you to stand up. Who did it? We're going to find out who did that. We're going to punish him for daring to command you to work on the Sabbath day. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. He's always doing this. Um, As there was a crowd in the place. Now this is, again, I want to reset this image. Just for a second, I want to give you a different version of this. Jesus is coming to the pool to do his ritual thing and he sees this lame man and he says to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to go in the pool with me? And when the man says there's nobody to carry me, what does he think Jesus is going to do? Jesus is going to carry him. Instead, Jesus says, just get up and come with me. And then Jesus does his ritual and he just walks off. And this man's walking to the temple carrying his bed. And they say, who was it that did this? Well, he has no idea who Jesus is. He's got no clue who that guy was. It was just a random guy who asked him a weird question and then made him, then allowed him to walk. And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. Verse 14, and afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well. This is awesome. Remember that the temple, all right, this is a festival. Jerusalem swells with over a million pilgrims during festivals. This courtyard is the largest paved outdoor space in the world. Jesus is milling in the midst of a million pilgrims and makes a beeline to the guy he healed. And it's not like he can pick him out of a crowd, right? These guys have interacted for all of what, 15 seconds? And Jesus says to him, see, you're well. Now, what do you think this guy is doing when Jesus meets him? 
He's just dealt with the Jews. They're off trying to find Jesus. For the first time in his life, he is in the temple courtyard. He is just looking at the glory of, of this place dedicated to God. And who walks up to him? Jesus. And Jesus says to him, I see you're doing pretty good. Now, go and sin no more. That nothing worse happened to you. Now we could talk forever about what it is that he's at, what he means by that. But I don't want to get into that. It's what Jesus said. It's the way it was. And the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So he finishes at the temple. He goes back out. He finds those Jews that were saying, hey, uh, I found the guy. It's that guy over there coming out of the temple. Said, and the man, and the, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They know who Jesus is. Oh, it's him. Always causing trouble. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they start to give Jesus grief about what he just did. And Jesus just looks at him and says, My father is working until now, and I am working. He said, who do you think works on the Sabbath day? God. God is at work. And I can't not be at work when my father is at work. And verse 18, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then... This is going to open into a discourse. We're actually going to spend next week talking about this discourse um, where Jesus, for this is the first big, long message that Jesus has in the second half of chapter 5. But I want you to think about this situation. We have a, a context in which people who think that they are worshiping God are leaving the undesirables at a pool outside of the temple so that they can go worship. How is it that in 38 years, none of the people who were making the pilgrimage to the pool and going and bathing themselves stopped and looked at this lame man and out of the charity of their heart just carried him into the water so he could go to the temple? How is it that they have a society that is super religious in its entire makeup? I mean, these people are constantly making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and yet in the midst of all of their thinking, somewhere they have abandoned one of the very most important principles of Torah, of the Jewish law, which is that you always care for the stranger. You always take care of the one in need. You always provide for the widow and the childless. That, that they have an obligation and a responsibility as Deuteronomy 6 says, to love their neighbor as themselves. In the midst of that world, Jesus, rather than preaching a sermon on it, although he does get into a discourse, writes a sermon in the life of one of the outcasts. He simply speaks. Take up your bed and walk. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. John is uh, glossing Genesis chapter 1 
where, G- where God speaks and the world is made and formed and organized. And he is saying that the word of Jesus is the creative power of God. Jesus, rather than being a, a, a therapeutic healer, someone who manipulates the body, and, and I, mean, that's, I mean, let's face it, that's how we heal people. We manipulate their body. Um, either we, we fix things that are out of alignment, like Doc does, or, or there's medications to make things balanced and, and to work things out. And that's the purpose of, of all of medicine is to, to get us back to normal. Jesus simply has authority. All Jesus does, so far in the book of John, all Jesus has done to do miracles is talk. He turns the water into wine by telling people to just go fill the water, the, the water uh, barrels. He heals the, uh, the basilicos, the, the, the officer, uh, his son who has a fever in Capernaum in the last chapter. He heals him just by saying, go home, your son's fine. And here he simply tells a man to take up his bed, and walk. And the reaction of the people illustrates the distance that had opened up between them and their God. Although they were doing all the right things, although they were observing the commandments, although they were ritually purifying themselves, although they were they were on their way to Jerusalem, although they were going to go to the temple and offer sacrifices, there was such an enormous distance between them and God that when God was at work in the life of an outcast, the only thing they could see was the violated law. Why wasn't anyone willing to help this man? Because all that mattered to them in their religious life was their own accomplishments. And why were they more upset about a man carrying his cot than celebrating God at work? Because their God fit in their pocket. Their God was a personal Jesus. Now they wouldn't have said Jesus, they would have said a personal, they would not have called him a personal God. But it was a God who just did what they needed done took care of their primary concerns, uh, handled things for them. Let the lame man figure out his own path to salvation. Let Let the outcast figure out their own way in. Now here's just something for free. Why is it that Jesus doesn't heal all of the lame and blind and paralyzed at the pool. You ever stop to think that? Wouldn't that have made a statement? Like Benny Hinn swinging his jacket. Some of you know who he is. There's a great video set to let the bodies hit the floor from his faith healer. It's worth checking out. There's a, there's, by the way, there's another one set to Dragon Ball Z where they're summoning fireballs and knocking people down. YouTube is a great place. Why didn't Jesus just do that? Why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? Now, I'm going to tell you, probably because this guy is the only one who would have actually believed Jesus was who he was. Jesus knew who to minister to. He knew who was going to listen and who was going to hear. In fact, I wonder whether this guy wasn't scorned by the other outcasts for daring to be healed. 
He broke the rules. Why were they upset? Because they did not understand the authority that Jesus spoke with. Again, John chapter 1, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. They should have heard the voice of God in the voice of Jesus. They should have seen the hand of God in his ministry. But all they see, all they can notice, all they care about is that someone broke their rules. This is a constant reminder, I think, for me, as well as hopefully for you, that we are not touched by God so that we can feel superior to others. The only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the acceptance of the authority of Christ, the authority of God. In all other respects, we are made of the same stardust, we, we, are, we are body and soul just like everyone else. Christians are not special except for one thing. They are under the authority of Christ. You say, well, then what's the big deal? To be under the authority of Christ is to be under authority of God. To be under authority of God is to be under the authority of the Creator. And that's the big deal. When I was a kid, uh, well, kid, I was 19, 20 years old. I had a friend who told me he was a Buddhist Catholic. Well, that, that sounds weird, but Buddhism is not in all of its manifestations a religion. It is a, a philosophy. Um, and so there, it, it, you can be a Buddhist Catholic. Um, it looks weird, but you can be one. Um, and the reason was, he just felt, he said, to, he said to me, he said, I feel that, that, you know, Buddhist practices, they connect me with the reality of the world. I'm a preacher's kid. I went, so what's wrong with our faith as Christians? Not all of us, but some. What's wrong with the way Christianity operates that we aren't all about connecting with the reality of what the world really is? The ultimate reality of the world, if what we say is true, then our faith should connect us our, to the authority of the one who created reality. And so it's a, a call, a reminder to us to think about that. How is my faith under the authority of the one who created? And then how is it working through me, not for me, but through me for others? A Christian should not be walking past a pool full of lame, blind, and paralyzed people. And I'm speaking in a metaphor. I'm using this as a metaphor for whatever you want to metaphor it. We walk by a pool full of lame and blind and paralyzed people who only want to be in the presence of God. 
Every Christian should be taking one of them in their arms and walking into the pool. See, the point of this miracle is not the miracle, it's the attitude of the people that Jesus had to change with the miracle. This is not about that. This is not about this, it's about that. And it provides an opportunity, we're going to talk about it next week, for Jesus to launch into a massive discourse, complicated argument about why he and the Father, he and God, share authority and are one. And I hope you'll come next week and and be able to really get into this. This is the first time in the book of Go- uh, the Gospel of John we actually hear Jesus speak at length. And it is an extraordinary passage of Scripture. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, we want to know you better. As Lord, you have authority over us. Help us to submit to your authority. To be um, so sensitive to your work and your will that where we encounter places that you would have us to minister, we would minister. To close the distance between our hearts and your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.